This lecture is brought to you by Knox Theological Seminary on iTunes U. Knox is a seminary in the tradition of the Reformation that exists to educate men and women to declare and demonstrate the gospel of Jesus Christ. Our prayer is that this teaching will be beneficial in your Christian life and ministry. Back to justification then and what we were talking about before. Um, just to recap briefly what I was saying, and that is that justification can be seen as something objective, a quality of God, you know, one of his attributes, something which is intrinsic in him that may or may not be given to us, be somehow trans transferred or transferred to us versus a provision which God makes, something which is subjective, you know, tailored to our needs kind of thing, but which is not uh, a thing in itself. So that for me to be justified by God, you know, in the presence of God does not mean that I am changed into a different kind of being you know, than to what I was before. Um, but I can still stand in his presence because I have been forgiven, I have been pardoned, I have been accepted, whatever word you want to use, without having been changed in myself. All right? Now, this is really the heart of the teaching of Martin Luther. This is the key. Because Luther was, was battling with this, you know, with, it, with this whole idea. Uh, because he had uh, grown up with the notion that um, to be justified by, in the presence of God, you had to be changed. You had to be something different from what you were. If I put this in theological terms, there was really no difference between sanctification and justification. Um, sanctification, becoming holy, you see, changing into something that you were not before, was in fact the precondition of your justification. You could only stand in the presence of God honestly without a sense of inadequacy or sinfulness and so on if you were sanctified. So the more sanctified you were, the holier you were, the closer to God you were, and therefore the more justified you were. And this, of course, underlay the, the notion of, um, of, of what the Christian life was all about. Because what you find, and we talked a little bit about this yesterday, the whole concept of, of holiness and sainthood, the minute you start thinking in, in terms of sanctification uh, uh, and you know, becoming a better person, however you express this, the word saint gets to be reserved for the, the person who has achieved this. Now, it doesn't necessarily mean 
that the person who has achieved this has done so by his own efforts. That's not what it's about, really. It could be that the person who has achieved this has done so by receiving a greater measure of God's grace. And indeed, this is what most people would say. They would say, well, if Peter or Paul and John are saints, it's not because they worked harder than anybody else, uh, but it is because God poured out his grace on them to an extraordinary degree. Uh, and uh, so what, you, what happens, you see, if you, if you take this line, is that the church gets to be divided into two classes of people, those who have achieved sainthood, you know, or one way or the other, and those who haven't. Now, almost by definition, of course, those who have achieved sainthood will be few in number. Um, because perfection is just not really attainable in this life, you see. So, I mean, what, it's not something that, you know, is, is going to be common for everybody. And that's basically uh, what the medieval church did. I mean, there were, uh, there, you know, there was an elite class of people, the saints, uh, who had uh, gone to heaven. We knew they were, we know they're in heaven. And you could pray to them to pray for you. I mean, you know, it was, it was, you could ask them to pray for you because they had access to God um, in a way that you and I presumably do not have. So there was a whole sort of hierarchy, uh, you see, set up around this. And of course, the aim of the Christian life was to become one of the elite, one of the saints, uh, you know, to achieve a degree of spiritual uh, and moral maturity uh, that you too uh, would enter into this, uh, you know, this select group of people. Um, and of course, when there was evidence that this had happened in a given case, then the church would canonize this and say, well, this person over here we know has achieved sainthood. It is not to deny that others may have achieved it as well. I mean, that's, this, this is an, an unknown question. You see, who else might, might uh, conceivably have, have, have acquired this? But it's simply pointing out that we can be fairly certain that X person has, you know. And so the label saint gets put onto that person. Now, all of this operates, of course, in a way which undermines the biblical concept of sainthood and holiness. Because the biblical concept, as I pointed out yesterday, is not that the saints are an elite group in the church, you know, those who have the, the high achievers. Um, uh, you know, this is not, not what the Bible says. The Bible says that everyone who becomes a Christian, every Christian is a saint. See, by, by definition, that's what being a saint is. But how does this work? Because it's clear, you see, and, and the, one of the reasons why a lot of people couldn't accept that in practice 
was because it's obvious that the church is full of sinners. In fact, the very people that the Apostle Paul calls saints in the New Testament were sinners because of a fairly extraordinary kind because otherwise the Apostle wouldn't have been writing to them. You see the contradiction there. He wrote to them in order to correct their, their wrong behavior, um, but he wrote to them as saints. Uh, you see, so it's a, it's a strange kind of thing. Luther sort of solves this problem, if you like, or works his way through this problem by coming up with his famous phrase, simul justus et peccator. Uh, simul, simultaneous, at the same time. Justus, just or righteous, et and peccator, sinner. So, um, at the same time, righteous and sinner. Or, as we normally say in English, because we, we can't really talk like that, so we say, a justified sinner is our way of, of, um, uh, of doing this. Uh, incidentally, uh, a French friend of mine showed me a, a picture that he had taken uh, a little while ago in, uh, in, in uh, one of the port cities of France, Saint-Nazaire. He'd been there and on the dock in Saint-Nazaire. There was a sign saying uh, in French, uh, pas de pêcheur, you see. And meaning, of course, no fishermen. Nobody, no, you're not to fish, no fishing there. But in French, because of the way the language has developed, Spanish, this hasn't happened, not quite. You see, the word for sinner and the word for fisherman are very similar. Uh, but in Spanish, you can distinguish between pecador and pescador because of the S. You still have this. But in French, this S has disappeared. So, pêcheur, the same word, only different accent. You see, the, the, the word for sinner has uh, an acute accent, a, and the word for fisher then has a circumflex because of the missing s, the s that used to be there, uh, but is gone, so they put a, a circumflex. But basically, it looks the same, sounds the same, and so on. So, pas de pêcheur. And the person who very helpfully decided that it wasn't enough to put this sign up in French, you had to put it in English and in German also. Um, and so he looked in, in the dictionary uh, under the word that you know, he thought he was looking at, and he has pas de pêcheur in French, meaning no fisherman, and the English translation to this is no sinners, and the German translation is keine Sünder, the same thing, no sinners, you see. The poor man made this mistake, all right? Um, so be careful, you see. You can easily throw words around without realizing, um, uh, you know, what you are doing um, uh, in this case. Um, well, if you have no sinners allowed, of course, that's one way of stopping people from fishing um, because you obviously wouldn't get anybody um, uh, doing this. Uh, but, uh, you see, it raises the question of what is a sinner? Um, 
and what does it mean to be, how can you be a sinner and justified in the sight of God at the same time? Is this not a contradiction in terms? And of course, in one way, it's, it, it is. It's not a contradiction so much as what we call a paradox. In other words, two things that ought to be incompatible and in, in, at one level and in theory are incompatible, but nevertheless live together side by side because they are joined by a higher principle or by a different way of thinking. And this is the, the nature of justification, you see, in, in, uh, in our theology. Because our justification does not depend on the transformation of our life. It does not depend on our sanctification. The transformation of our life is, by definition, a work in progress. I mean, it's something that is, is happening. It hasn't already occurred. It's not finished. But justification, according to Luther, is something that is finished. It has occurred. It, it's not something that is growing on us, you know, or developing over time. And this is because of its nature. You see, either you are guilty before God or you are not. Uh, you know, you, you can't be half guilty. Uh, either you are condemned or you are acquitted. Now, you may be condemned with mitigation. You know, there may be all sorts of circumstances that make your sentence lighter than it might otherwise have been. Fair enough, but you are still condemned. Uh, you may have followed this, a trial of Oscar Pistorius, which the entire world has been following for reasons that I don't fully understand. He, he was sentenced to five years in jail, um, you know, for killing his girlfriend. And uh, there were those who, who wanted him to be acquitted, you know, straight off and so on. Uh, but the judge said something like, no, you know, a murder has been committed, this is wrong, and, um, and th there must be you know, some recognition that, that a payment has to be made for this. And so she was quite merciful, really. I mean, you know, if you murder your girlfriend and only get five years in jail, it's not too bad, is it? I mean, it's kind of, you could kind of think of that, you know. Is, 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 what am I doing for the next five years? You know, do I really, can I afford to kill my girlfriend? But anyhow, um, it just, well, but, uh, so you can see this, but still it's a condemnation. It's not an acquittal. I mean, it may be a mitigation. It may be a, a lighter sentence than, than one might have expected. Um, but it's, it's not just walking away. So you cannot say that the man has been justified. Um, he has been condemned, but shown a degree of mercy. All right? With us as Christians, of course, we are just as guilty as Oscar Pistorius could ever have been. You know, it's not a case of this. 
that we are not guilty, but we have been acquitted, to use that terminology. We have not been given a lesser sentence. We have not been told uh, that, uh, you know, uh, because we have had faith and because we have, you know, repented uh, and so on, we'll only get, um, you know, five years in hell or, uh, or five years in purgatory or whatever, uh, you, you know, it, it may be, uh, so that we still pay a price, you know, for this. We have been let off completely. Uh, that's, we have been justified. But on what basis? Uh, and in what way? Uh, and, of course, Luther uh, says uh, that we, have, we are justified, yes. We can stand in the presence of God, yes. But we have not been changed. It is not because we have, we have somehow become better people, either by our own efforts or by the grace of God working in us. God doesn't do that. Justification is not the same thing as change, as transformation. Justification is acceptance. You see, justification is um, uh, really adoption into the family of God. And, in, and, the, and Paul in Romans, Romans chapter 8, uses the language of adoption to describe it. And adoption is a very good analogy, is a very good image, because when you are adopted into somebody's family, you are made a member of that family, you are made an heir uh, on the same basis as the natural children. But of course, this is done by grace, not by entitlement. In other words, you are a member of that family because you have been chosen and you have been, uh, you know, given that status. Not because you are a blood relation, not because you have some kind of entitlement to it. And I suppose you see this most obviously uh, when you have interracial adoption. Uh, you know, you see people walking down the street, uh, white people, say, with a black child. You know that child has been adopted. The child does not become white because the child is adopted by white parents. But the child inherits everything that uh, the natural-born child would have received because of the adoption. Right? So this makes it a good analogy, a good picture image, because we are like that. We are like black children who have been adopted by a white parent. Um, we still look the same way as we did before. We, you know, we, we don't become different in that sense. But our status is completely different. Because, as I say, we have uh, been accepted by God, how? By faith. What is faith? See, Luther's critics, many of them, 
completely misunderstood that. They said, well, Luther talks about justification by faith, not by works. But in fact, what he has done has turned faith into a work. Because if I believe, if I choose to believe, uh, you know, make the effort to believe, then I get justified. All right, but that makes that uh, belief as a kind of work, something I do. You know, it's just a different something. And of course, this is not what Luther uh, meant by faith, because faith is a gift of God. It is something given by God, planted in our hearts. It's not something we have, um, you know, of our own free, uh, free will or, or volition. It's not something we can stir up in ourselves out of nothing. It is something that we have to receive from God. And this, of course, is the work of the Holy Spirit in our hearts, uh, to implant in us faith, trust in God. Why is faith sufficient for justification? I mean, this becomes the next question. Because you might say, well, all right, I have faith in, you know, my car, or I have faith in my television set. If I push the button and turn it on, it will come on. You know, I believe this is going to happen. But this does not justify me. So there's got to be something about faith that is more than just belief. You know, I mean, I believe that Jesus Christ was the Son of God, that he came into the world, he died for me. Yes, as a fact, I believe this. But this is not saving faith. Because saving faith is entering into a new kind of relationship with God in Christ. There is a relational dimension here. Now, of course, for somebody like Luther, Luther would have said, you cannot know Jesus without being related to him. I mean, that, uh, th that's part of the package, you know. Um, if you claim some kind of factual knowledge about Jesus, uh, but don't actually have a relationship with him, then, then you are not justified because that's not faith, all right, um, in, in, in that sense of the word. So Luther was aware of this. Today, of course, we have to be more precise. Uh, you know, we have to say it. We have to spell it out. It's not a different teaching. It's just, um, you know, uh, we, need, we, we need to do more to avoid possible misunderstanding uh, on this point. Uh, and so we have to say uh, that... Uh, faith is union with Christ, trusting in Christ. Uh, it's like being grafted into the tree, um, you know, into the, the olive tree in Romans chapter 10. Um, uh, you know, this is what God has done uh, for us so that by union with Christ, by being united with him, we receive his spirit in our lives and the Holy Spirit um, brings to us the reality of justification. And it is that work in us by the Holy Spirit 
which makes us children of God. All right? I am not a child of God by nature. I am not a child of God by, by uh, what I have earned, by works of some kind or other. I am a child of God by grace. But once you are a child of God, can you cease to be a child of God? I mean, is it possible to stop being a child of God? And the answer to that, at least given by somebody like Luther and Calvin and so on, is no. You cannot fall away from this. Just as if you are born physically, you can't deny this. You can't go back into your mother's womb and say, well, I don't really want to be born. You know, uh, I'd, I, I'd rather stay the way I was before. You haven't got that option. So that the union with Christ is the, has the same effect. You see, it's not something that um, does, has no, has no uh, implications for your life. It is something which transforms you, which changes you, which comes into you and, uh, and makes a difference. All right? With the result, of course, that all the things that people were talking about in terms of sanctification, you know, good works and what have you, these are the result, the fruit of justification, rather than the cause. In other words, if I do something good, I cannot go to God and say, look, Lord, I've done this. This is for you. This you cannot do. You can't offer God uh, your works as, as some kind of evidence um, that you deserve to be justified or, or, or something like that. On the other hand, if you have this union with Christ, if Christ is at work in your heart and life, if your, heart, if your mind is being changed by the presence of God, the Holy Spirit in you, then that will manifest itself in good works, broadly speaking, in doing things that demonstrate this fact. And I say this because Luther is often criticized for not having a doctrine of good works, for thinking that somehow you can go to heaven without doing anything, you know, without showing any evidence that you belong there. And he never said that. That's, that wasn't the way he thought at all. He thought, and, and he was followed, of course, by Calvin and the other Protestants in the 16th century, that good works flow naturally from conversion. You cannot use them as, um, as collateral, as it were, you know, as a bargaining chip in order to get into heaven. No. But once you are there, you know, once you have been justified, then this justification will work itself out, will show itself in this way. These courses provide a glimpse into our academic programs. Knox students can take one-week or semester-length courses in person at our South Florida campus or choose to complete a degree entirely online. By bringing together academic excellence, a vibrant community of learning, and flexible scheduling, Knox offers today's students timeless truth through modern convenience. 
For more information about earning credit toward a master's degree, please visit our website at knoxseminary.edu.